0: Yo, hey, this is Basco. I know I've been off the air for a while, so, um, but the saga continues. Uh, but I am very overwhelmed by the reactions and the responses that I had, like, sending out these videos on, like, Messenger and so what. I mean, I, I just don't, like, um, yeah, I, I just don't send them out, like, you know, like, knowing who I send it out to, I just send it out to random people on messenger and skype and i just like share it on like a thousand facebook groups i'm on um so yeah and i i didn't expect anyone to get back at me but a lot of you did and a lot of people that you know i didn't expect to hear from at all uh, got back to me with questions and um and these were very like some of the, these questions are like you know very broad and can be like um an entire subject of a segment, but I thought I would, you know, first, like, get rid of these questions, um, uh, tackle these questions first, uh, um, get them solved before I move on to the story of the mouse to Nepal and me and, uh, my teenage years, of course, there's, like, earthquake and, like, me first time, me coming to America for the first time and, like, Michigan, my time in, in uh, Ohio and Omaha and, uh, and, of course, New York, New York, Um, and then in Pittsburgh too, but you know, I don't know, you know, how long this is going to take. Like, I I probably, it's like a year of recording if I like tell you all these stories, like all even the little, little intricate details about, you know, um, my relationships and and, uh, how I developed into like who I am today. Um, but Like I said, uh, the first question that I got was from a comrade back in Nepal who I went to school with, uh, his question reads, um, well, yeah, I mean, I I can just condense it into, like, he sent me a whole paragraph, but I'll, I'll just condense it into a, a singular sentence, you know, which is, basically, what is the difference between, um, the working class in our part of the world, um, and the working class in, say, America, or Europe, or, or all these other countries. Um, let me start with, with home first. Uh, with South Asia, say, Nepal, India, Bangladesh, uh, you know, um, Pakistan, um, China, so on. So the working class in these, um, in these nations, of course, um, or these nation states, I would rather say, um, are people that have, you know, um, that have no access to certain things that, um, that would define um, uh, a good standard of living or a satisfactory st- standard of living, right? Um, of course, we talked about the Kameyas, the serfs, and like there's plenty of like communities in northern India. Vastar comes to mind. Um, like a lot of like these uh, communities that you know are like farming communities first of, uh, and then. You know, there are some communities that got forced into uh, factory labor, uh, such as the Bangladeshi working class, which were mostly predominantly farmhands that were, you know, forced to work in factories because all of the farms and all of the land was sold to uh, multinational corporations and multinational companies, um, you know, for cheap labor. And you had incidents such as the Rana Plaza fire where a lot of, like, workers died inside the factory fire now you have also um working conditions in china where you have nets on the windows uh where people don't jump out and commit suicide or like just workers not trying to escape from like you know uh, unhealthy conditions so yeah in 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 a way if you compare these two in in, t- in terms of their suffering say the first world worker and like you know worker in the third world that if you say hey who, co- who suffers the most it's o- always going to be the third world worker but I do believe that that is comparative suffering which is something that I believe has never really accomplished um any kind of like valuable um discourse uh so what does define the working class in the west And what does it define the working class in the east well there have been like recent uh developments in leftist theory uh for example the precariat which is the precarious proletariat which is what we call workers in the third world because these proletariat that is the working class are put under precarious uh, uh, conditions and this also applies to the uneasiness that is faced by the workers in the West with their jobs going overseas to these horrible conditions that these people, um, the people from the third world, from South Asia, from what I know, suffer from, and this has always created a sense of animosity that has also fueled this, uh, hatred towards, like, undocumented immigrants and, like, immigrants and farmers and so on, and, uh, Well, that's, that's also, you know, that goes with migrant labor, which, uh, which I believe is hugely based on, on like working class people. Like you, uh, most of your migrant laborers are working class people. You won't see rich migrant workers. That's, it's just unheard of. And, um, so yeah, that brings you to the point of, of, you know, of that, that distinction between, uh people who were working on the land as i said previously especially about the working class in nepal you wake up one morning you go to work in a farm that you know you'll never own uh that you'll never like you know you know that you're destined to work there and so are your kids and your kids kids and like the owners they're like kids will own like the land you know it's it, it is feudalism And now it has been transforming the 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 farms have turned into the factories and uh, and they're always owned by foreign hands at at the same time so it is almost like colonization has come back in like a different form however however uh it is it is pretty different because it has taken a, a 180 um colonization has taken a 180 and and the reason why I say it is, is because, um, when we study about the British Raj in India, um, the, um, British, uh, India company, um, the East India company in particular, uh, levied, uh, huge, um, um, taxes on, like, uh, the native, uh, population of India on cotton and on salt, which is, how like, Mahatma Gandhi or Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi, whatever you want to call him, um, arose to fame was because of his, uh, his, his salt march, which was, you know, him, protesting against like the heavy taxes on like salt and cotton and clothes made out of cotton in India and like food so on that was like that you know held like uh India hostage for a long time so it's and and it's same with like many colonized nations I'm just using India as an example um now you have the same kind of like uh trading almost companies Uh, we just call them corporations, and, uh, and, I mean, it's weird to quote, uh, Burton Russell in, like, this segment, but, like, Burton Russell does make a reference in his uh, history of Western philosophy to the great corporations of America, as he called them. um, well, now it's the great corporations of the world, and, um, Uh, What it has actually done is that it has taken place of these trading companies that used to exist. And um, now it has made uh, a sort of like neo-colonial presence in Africa and Southern Asia and many parts of China. And it has actually um, forced the working class of those countries to comply with with their colonial agenda, neo-colonial agenda. Uh, However, now that, you know, we have um, the right to mobility or or rather that, you know, mobility has been made easier for the workers, workers tend to go towards the West where the conditions seem better, but are not at their best. And for the workers of the workers in the West um, who are living in better conditions than their counterparts, they also are in a way economically colonized. Because in British East India Company, most of these taxes were used to fund the empire, uh, was used as bailouts for the, for the empire. So just like when um, the British East India Company used to use taxation levied against its colonies for its expansionism and its, you know, military adventurism and putting down rebellions and arming the empire tooth and nail you see the same thing happening with say china and uh, with what china is doing in africa and with you know uh, with the united states well all across the world and even european companies and so on which is basically taxing their own citizens this time because they ever ran out of countries to colonize and um actually you know um Yeah, basically the working-class people in the Western nations themselves have been colonized by their own government. Uh, They are paying bailouts to corporations and paying into the system that sustains the state uh, uh, monopoly on violence. It, 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 It maintains a sort of, like, supremacy that their governments, the governments of the West, And by the West, I generally mean nations, you know, colonial nations, like nations that have benefited from colonialism, uh, have now like colonized their own working class uh, through austerity measures. Um, We can talk about austerity at at great length, uh, but, you know, to make it shorter, this video, austerity measures are basically measures where, you know, taxation is used to like pay off debts while you cut down on like social services, which has been the theme of Western nations ever since the 1970s. The neoliberal um, idea, of course, is is based upon the principle of austerity. Uh, austerity. It's it's basically just pushing austerity measures uh, on the working class of those nations, so their paycheck gets slimmer and slimmer. While, um, you know, uh, the people in the third world, of course, who get their imported jobs, um, still suffer under horrible conditions. So in a way, what we have in common with with the working class of the West is this kind of economic colonization and uh sure they might you know here in the west people live better than the working class in the east but at the same time let's not lose sight of like what what is really important is that you know both factions no matter where which part of the world you come from have zero political uh autonomy and uh are not you know at the same time um are not powerful enough to change their um material conditions as they be now i'm not saying in the future they can't you know um, in the future i'm a bit optimistic but for now at least uh the differences between us are basically our standards of living and instead of like bickering over um you know how dare these uh which is what you know my friend's question was like how dare these white um western uh, "Quote unquote," uh, leftists try to, uh, you know, mouthpiece our oppression, and uh, you know, like when we're more oppressed than they are, and so on. That I don't think that's the right attitude. That's the same as meeting one of these uh, third worlders, "quote unquote," um, of uh, you know, leftists here in America that you know fetishize like the Eastern or like the the global south as they call it uh people who uh who struggle so much and and uh you know are the real proletariat but I you know I do not agree with that. I believe that, you know I believe that the working class in the West and the working class in the East have very few distinctions, if any, and uh we're both working class. That's why, you know, working people of the world have to unite. I mean that's that's a very convoluted answer, I know, but uh, yeah, I mean I could break it down somewhere in the future, but uh, that'll have to do for now. Uh, I would take another question, but first I gotta get rid of the the chapter that I was talking about previously, so I could move on with the podcast finally. Um, all right, uh, uh, I hope to see see you guys still tuned into the next segment. Thank you. Hello fine people. Um I've been very busy with my activism on uh, uh within the community and also trying to get uh paperwork in order to um stay in the United States a bit longer. I would like to elaborate on that. Uh as as you know as this thing goes on. I hope some of you guys are on board. I don't want you to feel like, you know, I abandoned you or anything. I just got busy with life and shit. You can still see my posts on, um, on, on Medium and on, um, on other places. Um, especially, like, I'm so overwhelmed with the love that I have from, like, my third world comrades, um... Yeah, like thank you for all the love that you've spent, sent me and uh yeah, and all the questions you've sent me too, which you know, I'll we'll have to uh answer another podcast just cuz they're very overwhelming and they also deal with a lot of like intricacies of 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 um of all well, the Maoist movement in Bastar and the Maoist movement and the new left coalition in Nepal, which I can talk about at length. And also, you know, local politics here in the United States and uh, and anywhere else in the world. Uh, also, the rise of fascism in Italy. That's something I'll have to cover eventually, I think. But for now, um, I would like to uh, talk about my first encounter with police Maoists. The first ever Maoist uh, that I ever met was... Um, i just call him Kancha. Um, was... A bricklayer worked in a, in a brick factory all the way in Bhaktapur. This was basically a rural part of Bhaktipur, which is basically about, I think, 21 kilometers. I don't know how many miles, but 21 kilometers away from Kapmandur, where the epicenter of that urban life was, that fine divide between uh, the rural peasantry and the ur- urban peasantry. Or the proletariat uh however you want to keep it however you want to talk about it uh so i was 15 at the time and bhattapur had this weird um history with the uh, working class radicals i in, in nepal um, particularly because if you look at many of the many of the communists in, in nepal they have always come from or have based some sort of their belief in and from Bhaktapur so uh, uh like it has always been a stronghold for the CPN UML which was known as the CPN UML which was basically the Communist Party of Nepal uh, at that time however the Maoist movement was just brewing and i was uh, 12 at the time and uh me and my friends we uh and uh, some of my cousins, well, mostly my cousins and me, and a friend of mine, we uh, we visited this um, this brick factory, and uh, we I remember uh, sitting on the back of a truck while you know driving off outside the the urban landscape and into uh, into the into the rural world of. of, of farms and um and basically a a desolate nothingness that existed outside the city um, of Kathmandu for many 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 miles you know and uh and that is probably where you get to see um the poverty that characterized those formative years of my life um uh, you had people that, uh, would live in huts made out of brick and they won't be cemented or anything. They were just brick houses, little brick huts. And you had, uh, a stove that ran on kerosene. So whenever you went inside these huts, the smell of kerosene and just the fumes in there would, would be so heavy. Uh, they would actually, it will actually feel like you were suffocating, but this was a place where, you know, uh, you had a family, like a father, a mother, and their children, all living within this space, that could, um, that was so embarrassingly small, um, and it was just made out of, uh, the roof was just made out of uh, straws, and, uh, you know, like, if this was The Tale of Three Pigs, probably the third pig, yeah, that's probably his house. Which is, which is the first thought I had as an 11-year-old. Um, uh, it was just, the, the poverty there was just, uh, was horrible. Like, I don't even feel like using any metaphors or trying to make it sound poetic, because the misery was... It just couldn't be, it couldn't be described. And the first time I met uh, a Maoist was within one of these huts. Uh, I remember him um, leading us into one of these, one of these small uh, brick huts, and um, and I remember him having a huge banner of a hammer and circle, um, hidden under what seemed to be his, his bed, which was basically just a wooden table that he had put mattresses and pillows on where he and his wife slept. Um, and he basically asked an 11-year-old what he knew about the People's Liberation Army, the Mukti Sen at that time, as it was called. So that was my first interaction with the, the very concept of people's liberation and that kind of stuck for a long time with me, the, the phrase itself, uh, people's liberation and uh, what it could actually entail. And the most absurd part of it was that we were under these huge towers of, of iron, and steel uh, under the canopy of a fuming dark clouds uh, that we that we were just staring at uh, and I remember Kancha sitting next to me and explaining why and who these Maoists are and why people like myself people who live in the capital and uh, had. The privilege to go to a school and um, the privilege to know where their next meals come from and not have to worry about feeding their their wives and their, and their children. Why to us the Maoists were the bad people? Because you have to understand that the Maoists... We're not really a popular faction in Nepal, or probably the revolutionaries in any kind of society do not start as the most popular um, faction. Uh, it is beyond um, common knowledge to know that the revolutionaries are never seen as the good guys, they're seen as the guys that you were supposed to be scared of. And such was was my orientation towards uh, revolution um, and the so-called phrase of Janamukti, of people's liberation. Now how could you explain to an 11-year-old what this poverty and how... Uh, the, the position of Maoists want to eradicate this poverty. You just could not, you know. It was very hard at first to understand, but uh, like I said, I always had Bua, I always had my granddad uh, to explain these things to me in our encounters. Um, I will say, however, m- my meeting with Kancha was brief. Um, that was it. That's probably the most, uh, most outstanding memory I have, of my, you know, of my being eleven years old, was this conversation I had with Kancha about um, these people in faraway jungles that are carrying rifles and are shooting at, at. Um, at police, at at the Royal Army, these were not bad guys. These were just, you know, uh, people who had been pitted uh, against the state for a cause that was larger than themselves. It was very ethereal, the, the explanation that he gave... Uh, much of it which much of it is blurred because you know you don't remember a lot of stuff when you were 11 years but uh, a lot of it actually stood out um, and I remember recalling that conversation uh, a year later when my granddad had come over to town to visit my mother and me um, this was... One of my first conversation where I actually brought this up with anybody, and um, and the Maoist movement had actually struck a deal with the Congress Party in order to come into government, and the whole overthrowing of monarchy that was dealt with, and uh, there was going to be uh, you know a constitution assembly, a constituent assembly, there were going to be elections, and so on, and the heirs of that time, obviously, were very political, um, and uh, everybody had delved into this kind of schism that comes naturally, in you know any kind of uh, liberal democracy, any kind of like electoral democracy, there is always a schism that you can be obs- that can be observed from the masses that vote. Uh, for example, the the previous um, election here in the United States actually was was probably a, a very well documented phenomenon of that. That schism of of polarizing opinions and how, you know, people live in two different worlds uh, on the same block. And that was obviously the case in Nepal because you had a multi-party democracy. Um, And, of course, you you were a poor country with a multi-party democracy where, you know, almost half of the population could not read and write, uh, you are going to have problems uh, you know, setting up uh, a, a good government that works. Uh, but I remember recounting the tale of Kansha to my granddad and how I believed that you know Maoists were not bad people because this guy at a brick hut. Uh, once told me that you know that they were good guys and that they were on his side and he was struggling So maybe they're not bad people and I remember Buah. He looked at me and he smiled and uh, a little known fact uh, Was that my my granddad was hounded by A lot, a lot of land that he had a fishing pond that he had was taken and captured by the Maoists, um, for which he actually didn't show much remorse uh, Oddly enough, he just laughed it away, he said, you know, Maoists have caused me a lot of sorrow, and he would just smirk, and he would say, of course there are bad people, and, uh, I don't agree with these bad people, but they're our bad people, um, and that was his, that was his line of, of, basically, that was his line of argument. They're bad people, but they're our bad people. Um, and of course, there were a lot of civilian tragedies by the man was at this time. And uh, I remember him trying to explain to me what the word people's liberation actually meant. And, uh, I remember he, he, he asked me if I knew who Martin Luther King was, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., I'm okay. I said, yes, um, he was a follower of Gandhi, which is basically the most, uh, most, uh, most common thing you'll hear for some, from someone in South Asia to say, because that's our first introduction to Martin Luther King, um, is through, you know, the fact that he was a big fan of satyagraha and nonviolent movements, and he believed in pacifism, which is not really true. Neither was Gandhi a pacifist, and neither was Martin Luther King. But I do understand revolutionaries listening in would understand that. Um, but then he asked me about this other gentleman. Uh, he said, Do you know who Malcolm X is? Or, you know. Do you, do you, have you ever heard their name Malcolm X? And I remember shaking my head. I said, no, no, I don't know any Malcolm X. Is that even a real name? That just sounds like a a cartoon villain. (laughs) And it kind of did, I mean, to to a 12-year-old. That that sounds like, yeah, a a villain. But I remember him laughing and he just said, uh... Uh, he quoted Malcolm X to me at that time. He said. Um, you cannot ask a man. To set you free. Uh, you know. It's either. It's either. I forget that quote now. But it's liberty or it's death. It's either the ballot or the bullet. And maybe. Just maybe. Martin Luther King was on the side of the, of the ballot. I and. Mean, mm-hmm. Malcolm X, although not outwardly, was not always on the side of the bullet, but he did argue that the bullet was just as necessary, and he tried to explain to me that that was the position of the original Maoists. He was dissatisfied with the Maoist party in Nepal, as were most leftists, especially because of the violence that they inflicted upon civilians in particular and that um, always you know was was something that you know is is still irredeemable you cannot overlook the fact that the Maoist insurgency in Nepal also killed a lot of unarmed civilians maimed tortured a lot of um, civilians that were not rich bourgeois people they were also peasant farmers for on the on the charges of being reactionary and uh, that kind of made uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of feelings I was having towards uh, the man kind of change in an instant at, at the age of 12. Um, and I took a more nuanced approach to, to being a revolutionary because it was never the circumstances of... Of these revolutionaries, of, of where they found themselves and to be, there was always this sense of what is more larger than them, what is larger than their life, what is larger than the material conditions that they themselves lived in. Because a lot of these Maoist leaders were the petit bourgeois, you know, college-educated people that you know took to took to um, the forest uh, to wage guerrilla warfare on the system that had been in place for. Almost two thousand years. Remember that they were actually fighting the monarchy, and uh, an absolute monarchy until a time. Um. So that actually aided a lot in my political development from an early age, from twelve, and uh, and that's probably where I started to learn about, at the same time, about Malcolm X, Brother Malcolm, and. Uh, a few months ago, I was actually at the first mosque where he ever preached in Harlem. And uh, I do believe that this was an essential pilgrimage. Like somewhere over there, my um, the 12-year-old me would have been kind of proud that I came all the way to New York and got to see the, the place where this man that my bua, my granddad, told me about. Um, anyways, moving on. Um, the story of Kansha was... As I later tried to look for him and search for him... I'm sad to say, it was never a, a happy story. Kansha actually joined the revolutionaries in their armed struggles much later, uh, later on. Um only to come back empty-handed from the revolution and start working in the brick factory again. But this time, he was able to rent out a room in in somewhere in Bhaktipur. Now, I used to hear about Kancha a lot because I used to go around Bhaktipur a lot. Um, uh, I'll be honest, it was mostly to smoke weed. Um, you know, it was around the same neighborhood because weed was cheaper in Bhaktapur. And, um, and then it was around the brick factory too. So whenever I went down to see there, I would I would always remember this this man, this Herculean man, uh, huge, um, strong, and 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 his. Uh, I still remember, you know, the silvery luster of 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 sand on his biceps and on his, um, shoulders. His face was always dusty, um, I'm told. Never saw him after I was 11, but I kept keep, keeping tabs on Like, Do you remember what happened to Concha You know, the guy that, uh, they used to live in that hut over there, and, uh, they told me he became a Maoist And he went out, and I asked him what happened to, the, to his wife and his baby, um, well, his wife and his baby went to live with their, um, live with her parents somewhere in a village, uh, not very far away from, from the city, um, and, well, cancer really didn't survive the insurgency, uh, no one knows exactly what happened, they have never even located his body, um, but it is, it is pretty, um, yeah, it is pretty uh, certain to say that Concha is dead uh, and he never actually came back home. And that was a story for a lot of revolutionaries that had fallen in battle. Um, a lot of them had left a lot of their women, their wives, uh, their families, uh, their children uh, to go into the struggle. Also, one of the f- formative um, ideas I about um, media either it was state-sponsored or private uh, uh, that was built within those times because I remember listening in to this recording of, of a radio broadcast uh, about this, uh, full-pitched battle in Bandipur, not very far away from the capital, uh, between the Maoist guerrillas and the army, which was a huge win for the Maoists, um, the Battle of Bandipur, um, and I remember listening to that recording on the radio, and it, it, it came with that nationalistic fervor, and the the way the, the the man on the radio was describing this this, this scenery this um and it, it was very poetic he was even he was even using onomatopoeias almost as if you know this guy was some sort of expert on literary criticism and uh I got to see that many years later when I first came to, when I Came to America, and when they were throwing tomahawk missiles into Syria, that imagery, uh, that vi- vivid pictorial imagery, and what I heard on that radio, were pretty much, uh, pretty much the same. And I believe that that has that is is the sign of the oppressor justifying its crimes against his own people is nationalistic fervor at that time, in particular. So my other interactions with the Maoists happened when I was 15 and the war was long over. The Maoists were in government, a lot of the combatants handed over their weapons. And um, I remember meeting a 40 year old man that fought in the struggle when he was was 25 or something. He came back home, he came back home, of course, with nothing. Uh, a few, uh, you know, there was com- compensation for like, um, Maoists uh, that, you know, that were returning home after after the insurgency. Um, but it was never enough to last him, so he was looking for foreign employment at the time, he got hired by a human resource agency here in Nepal, and he had to go all the way to Saudi Arabia to work in, in the oil fields, or doing construction, I'm not sure on that, and uh, he died uh, working in the oil fields of construction, whatever he was, going, he was, he was working on Um, and his family back home never received any compensation. We also never, never in these conversations about after the Maoist insurgency, have we ever heard, even heard of the word PTSD ever being told, ever being talked about. Um, That also is something that, that has stayed with me, because we have never talked about uh, the mental implications of, of that, that long struggle uh, of living in forests of, of um, you know, fearing for your life uh, and coming back home and trying to adjust to this, uh, uh, this rural rugged poor society that already spits on the poor uh, we have never even talked about that uh, in Nepal that discourse does not happen and it happens a lot in the United States. And that's something I've learned. That a lot of these Maoists never got to actually talk about what their mental, um, mental situation was at that very time. And I, I guess I had sympathies for the Maoist cause. But never sympathy for its methods, its, its civilian... Uh, executions, it's, you know, bombing of public transportations and buses, uh, this um, indiscriminate killings of of school teachers. That was something unforgivable. But it was, it was my interactions with Maoists in Nepal had for a long time shaped my outlook on the world. Early on as as twelve. Um, And uh, I guess in the next segment, I'm going to have to talk about uh, how I got radicalized early on and how I had to join activism early on while keeping that uh, a secret from a lot of my friends and a lot of, you know, family members uh, so I do not get caught up uh, having to explain what exactly I was doing. Um, And... How that has taught me about my activism here in America, or whatever few things that i actually helped people achieve, or you know, or I try to push for here. What are the reasons why I try to push for it here? In the next segment, I will actually talk about guns, you know, the, the favorite subject uh, that happens to just pop up on your newsfeed uh, uh, since the parkland shooting all right um if you're still listening i'll see you in the second segment